special members forum, a congregational forum, uh, really for all of you, just to be able to talk about how the church is doing. Uh, we would love your feedback. We would love to hear from you both about ways that the church has done well and borne fruit uh, in ministry and in community, but also as we explore ways in which we need to grow and improve. We humbly know that we have many ways that we need to grow and uh, changes that need to be made, and we would love your input. So if you're a member of the church, official member, please do come to that. And uh, even if you're not, you are a part of the community, so we would love for you to participate, and we would love to hear from you as well. Uh, before that time, though, we will first be hearing from God's Word in, in the next few minutes, and we're continuing in our series that we've called One Another, and that's where we are investigating different times throughout the New Testament where we hear comments about, teachings about, ways that we ought to behave and think about and be disposed towards and love one another. How do we do relationships in Christian community? That's what we're investigating together, and we come upon this topic, this sermon, and before we take a look at it, could we please pause and pray together? Let's pray. Jesus, please come and bless your word and help us to hear, uh, not from a human voice, but from your voice, the very voice of God, and uh, give us life with your words of grace uh, give us strength as you encourage and even exhort us to love differently in special ways. And so we just pray for the power of your Holy Spirit and the freedom of your Holy Spirit work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We were made for physical contact, literally. Uh, this is true of babies. You may know this. That physical touch, especially skin-to-skin -skin contact for newborns, actually boosts the development of infants. This is true of professional basketball players. One study found that in the NBA, the best teams, the best-performing teams, tended to have more physical contact with each other. A high-five, a chest bump, whatever it might be, Better teams had more contact with each other than the bad ones. And it's true of all of us, too. About 10 years ago, psychologists at DePaul University found that people could communicate up to eight different emotions, from gratitude to love to even disgust, simply by the way that they touched a person who was blindfolded. Human touch is a wordless language. It's a language, even without words. It has the capacity to express friendship, welcome, support, joy, whether with a cordial handshake, an exuberant high five, a supportive hand on the shoulder, or a warm hug. We know this by experience. I'm just putting words to it. And so maybe it shouldn't uh, surprise us when we read in a place like verse 16 how our passage invites us in the setting of trusting family-like Christian fellowship to greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy 
Kiss, kiss? Now that sounds strange to our modern ears. And so what does that mean? Well, first of all, understand that in ancient Middle Eastern and Near Eastern cultures, greeting someone with a kiss was a very common cultural expression of friendship and of affection. And so we're not to take this idea of greeting each other with a holy kiss literally, but rather we need to find culturally and socially and biblically appropriate applications of this principle. What does it look like here and now? And we need to recognize that it might look differently in life in Germany, from in Ghana, from in the state of Georgia, or even on Georgia Avenue right out here. Secondly, notice how it's described as a holy kiss. A holy, of course, means set apart for a special purpose or different from the world. So this is a kind of expression of affection that's unique to those who call each other brother and sister. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as Paul actually uses that language in verse 17. This is a tangible expression of the spiritual bond that's shared between those who are fellow sinners saved by grace. The word holy in holy kiss also implies that this is intended to be a non-sexual show of affection, which isn't meant to say that romance is in itself unholy. But this needs to be clearly said and distinguished because, as Christian writer Megan Hill once put it, helpfully, I think, with touch in our culture so often either co-opted by sexualization or horrifically corrupted by abuse, the right expression of physical affection in the church is difficult to figure out. It is difficult. Because we are different culturally, because we are different in our experiences of human touch, it is difficult. But church, what can it look like for us to, in those difficulties, to figure this out together? Thirdly, this is not a random or quirky saying that we can just easily dismiss. In fact, it's actually mentioned five different times in the New Testament, Three times in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 13, here in Romans 16, we're told, greet one another with a holy kiss. In 1 Thessalonians 5.26, Paul writes a variation on this, greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. And 1 Peter 5.14 says, greet one another with a kiss of love. It's repeated again and again. It's to be a norm. It's to be a common expression of life in the community. So then, in conclusion, what does it mean? What does it mean? To greet one another with a holy kiss means that whether with a handshake or a high five or a warm hug, to extend tangible expressions of family-like warmth, gospel welcome and fellowship in Christ. As one commentator, Alexander Strout, explains, we are commanded to greet brothers and sisters affectionately. 
Our greetings to one another should visibly express the reality of our family oneness and love. So let us not be impersonal, standoffish, or cold. Let us not take one another for granted. People need physical expressions of love as well as words of love. And of course, this is exactly how Jesus interacted with people throughout his time here on earth. Every time he healed somebody of a grave, debilitating disease, he would not just speak words of healing, though he could have done that. He typically spoke to them, then draw near and actually touched them. He would take their hand. Uh, In the case of the healing of a blind man, he would make sure to touch his eyes. Again, he could have done that healing just with a word, and yet Jesus made sure that they would feel his compassion. He would lift people up. He would take children by their hands. He would lead the broken and the downtrodden with his hand. And we're called to do the same. To give incarnate, enfleshed, embodied expression to the family-like love that we're called to share one with another. But why? Why do these tangible expressions of commitment and affection even matter at all? What's the big deal about them? We can only see the answer to that question, at least here in this passage, when we read this greet one another with a holy kiss within the larger context of this chapter, this chapter that's full of names. See, Paul has just finished up his magisterial letter, this epistle to the Roman church, where he explains all the rich promises of God in the gospel. God has taken people that only deserve his wrath for our sin, and yet he extends lavish mercy to them. He forgives your sin. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But more than that, he actually covers you with Christ's righteousness, treats you as if you had done everything perfectly, righteously. So he pours out blessing and favor into your life if you would only put your trust in Jesus and embrace him by faith. Not only that, he brings you into his family. He adopts you as his son and as his daughter. He pours into your life his Holy Spirit, which means that you don't just need to think your way into believing God's promises. God gives you the power to believe right from the inside, enabling you not only to trust in him, but also to be changed, to be like him. God giving us the power to be transformed more and more in the way in which we love one another, the way in which we love neighbor, and most of all, the way in which we love our God. Through many, many different expressions and explications, Paul unrolls this 
grand vision for the gospel of grace. And finally, he comes to the end of his letter here in chapter 16, where he begins to simply close out by greeting different people in the church. And here he lists out 35 different names. It shows you how personally Paul knew different individuals in the church. It makes you even wonder, could you list off 35 names here in our small church? People that maybe you don't know. I don't say that to guilt you. I say that as a challenge of the kind of intimacy and family-like knowledge of one another that the Bible seems to expect of us if we're growing in Christ. Some of these names Paul describes as co-workers in Christ Jesus. Co-workers because they labored side by side with Paul in life and in ministry. He says this of Priscilla and Aquila in verse 3. And of Urbanus in verse 9. And of Timothy in verse 21. He specifically expresses appreciation for how very hard many of them worked. He says this of Mary in verse 6, and of Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis in verse 12. But Paul calls them more than just co-laborers. Several times he calls them dear friends in the Lord. He calls, he says this of Epenetus in verse 5, and of Ampliatus in verse 8, and of Stachys in verse 9. Actually, that phrase there, Dear friends, could be translated more literally, my beloved, a deep word of affection and of care. They've been in each other's homes. They've been intimately involved in one another's lives. Paul explains in the second half of verse 5 that Epenetus was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Some of you have been a part of one another's stories, your discovery of Christ and the gospel. Paul describes that they have suffered together. He says in verse 4 that Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for me. He's personally indebted to them. In verse 7, Paul says, Andronicus and Junia have been in prison with me. No wonder Paul calls them friends. More than friends, he calls them family. In verse 14, he calls a syncretitis Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, he calls them what? Brothers and sisters. They're not only siblings to him, in fact, some of them he calls his parents too. The mother of Rufus, we're told in verse 13, has been a mother to me too. Or any of you here called to be like mothers, spiritual mothers, to those that are younger around you. Do you see what Paul is communicating? See, when the gospel of grace grabs a hold of your life and then grabs you into gospel family, into community, there, nobody should be a nameless face. Nobody is a member of a faceless crowd. Everybody is a real person. Everybody as a name. So Paul takes the time to call them by name. That's why taking the time to learn the names of one another, a small gesture, can actually be a radical expression of love. 
especially in a city like ours where you can pass by crowds of people on the sidewalk and treat each other like non-people, non-existent, non-forms. What if we got better as a church learning each other's names? I'm not always good at that. In fact, you might notice that sometimes after our service, as we're mingling and talking and saying goodbye or meeting meeting to people, sometimes I might be jotting something down or typing something into my phone. Sometimes it's the name of you, if I just met you. I don't remember names easily. Maybe you don't do too. It takes a little bit of work, commitment. I try to review them during the week, call the, na- the face and the story that I heard. Sometimes I'm not great at it. Some of you have been very gracious to me as I've had to ask you again and then again. Okay, and sometimes again what your name was. You've been gracious. We need to be gracious with one another. But you see, what are we trying to live out here as we do so? That we have a God that knows us by name. And so we ought to know one another also by name. In fact, here today, I decided to wear my name tag. I'm calling here today for a a revival of name tags, right? Before you come on in here, write down your name so that we can sort of make it a little easier to know each other with specificity and to be able to attach your name and your story and your face with a real person and carry you around in our hearts. Fill out them name tags. But there's something else that you have to understand about this chapter that explains why it's a big deal that Paul takes the time to mention people by name. And it's something that I learned from Andy Crouch, a wonderful writer and thinker, when I heard him teach on this passage. And it's this. You may not know that there's actually an incredible amount of social diversity that's represented in these names. There are many Roman names listed here. There are Jewish names as well. Andronicus, Junia, Herodion. Nine of the names that were named here, the individuals here, were women. Priscilla, Mary, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus's mom, Julian, and Nerus's sister. And historians tell us that Aristobulus, mentioned in verse 10, was the grandson of Herod the Great and the friend of the emperor Claudius. Narcissus, in verse 11, was a well-known, rich, and powerful man who exercised great influence on the emperor, and he too was a member of the church. And so you see the range of the kinds of people that are being gathered together in gospel community, people that normally and even outside the walls of the church would have no business being friends, let alone family, together. And you see that this is a primary interest of Paul, talking about the way in which the gospel of grace brings together people in totally mind-blowing, counterintuitive ways. It's why in verse 17, he mentions the threat of division in the church. Because he's thinking about the unity of all these people from so many different kinds of backgrounds. And then you also need to know this. Seven of these names, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Hermes, Philologus, Julia, Tertius, Quartus, were common names for slaves. 
You see, in the first century Roman world, when Paul wrote these verses, very few people had full legal standing. Very few people in the Roman world were recognized fully as human beings. Women were often treated as property. Of course, that was true of slaves as well. In fact, 20 to 25% of the residents of the Roman Empire were themselves slaves. And in fact, for some, if you were born into such a social condition, if you knew that you weren't ever really going to be legally recognized as a person, you had a child, then you didn't really, really bother even giving them a real name. And so sometimes you would be called by your birth order. First, second, tertius, third, quartus, fourth. Do you know the name Onesimus? It's the name of a slave that we find in the book of Philemon. That name means useful. Here are names of people that were former slaves, now a part of the Christian church, whose names still bear a part of that story. You see, but it's not just the Roman church. Sorry, it's not just the Roman Empire, is it? It's not just first century life that reflects this, is it? You see, every church of every time and place, including ours, consists of people, including you and me, that are starving, starving to be treated for the first time like a real person. Be treated like a real person. People who all week long feel that they have been dehumanized by the demands of the surrounding culture. Maybe in your workplace, whatever job you have, Maybe the demands that are placed on you make you feel daily instrumentalized for your labor. Or maybe you yourself have such a commitment to your work, you refuse to stop that you yourself treat yourself like a machine and not like a man or a woman. Treating yourself like a tool or being treated by others like a tool And it feels like your name might as well be useful. Or maybe you feel dragged around in relationships, not honored and respected, and certainly your heart not protected. Maybe it's why you find yourself jumping into unhealthy romantic relationships, or maybe you're just a person that very commonly feels sexualized by the lustful gaze of people at work, or through catcalls on the street, you feel like in this city sometimes your name might as well be pleasurable. Or perhaps you're weary because people in this town can come and go so quickly, so quickly, sometimes departing even without saying goodbye and so frequently that you've begun to wonder if they've named you forgettable. And then, of course, we live in a city that may not literally name you Tertius Third, but when you look where you are on the affordable housing waiting list, 
and you feel that how, how the city often treats you, too often you feel like your name might as well be 3,623rd. This is what the apostle is speaking into. And this is where he reminds us. But then, just maybe, we discover, or perhaps rediscover, that the God of the Bible is a God of grace. A God who has not forgotten you. A God who remembers you. A God who calls you his beloved. You see, Jesus isn't ashamed to call you his sister or his brother. He didn't just risk his life for you. He gave his life for you. And guess what? We're told one of the promises of the gospel is that he refashions for you a new identity. He gives you a new name. In Isaiah 62, verses 2 and 3, We're told of those who are redeemed of the Lord. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And God calls you by your name into a new kind of community and family, and it's in this context of radical gospel rehumanization that Paul instructs us, greet one another with a holy kiss. And do you see why then? Because we need to make sure that you know that you are more than an idea or more than just a digital friend in a social media community. You are a real person right in front of me. Give me your hand. Give me your heart. Because we need to know that you, my friend, are more than just a disembodied human soul. That you have a human body that aches. Aches after a long day at work. That you have a human body that spills warm tears down your cheeks. When you're sad, a body that shudders with fear, when you're terrified, a body that feels like a thousand pounds when you're depressed. You see, because one of the essential parts of being made in God's image as a human being is to have a body. Our bodies are part of what make us human. And so we treat each other as real humans. As real persons, embodied persons, city life can make you feel virtually nameless, disconnected, even dehumanized. So don't you see simple, wholehearted, yet wise expressions of physical affection in Christian community? begins to rehumanize us. Every time you give a hug, a high five, or a handshake, you are reminding your brother, your sister, that they are human. 
loved, known, named, not only by you, but by God. So greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, three minutes. What does that look like practically? What does this really mean in community? How do we do this? How do we practice this? Now, let me start first with one important qualification to all of this. Some people in our community, in every community, are deeply uncomfortable with physical contact. Not everyone is comfortable with this, but for some people, it's because of traumatic experiences with inappropriate touch in the past. And as a community, we need to recognize this. And so, it's important that we never demand from someone that they receive our gesture of warmth, demanding it from them. No, we give each other room. We also don't feel badly or take it personally if someone gently resists your hug or even your handshake. You don't know their story. We're hoping to get to know one another's story, but that's on their terms and according to their needs. And in fact, as we grow in this as a community, it's important that we stipulate that at least for starters that greet one another with a holy kiss, a holy hug or handshake should be put into practice first and foremost with people of the same gender. And that that's not because sharing affection across gender is wrong. I actually think it is important for us to grow in those ways as well, to redeem non-sexualized family-like support for one another. But we need to recognize that there's a lot of healing and growing in wisdom that we have to do in this area. So an important qualification to all of this. Number two, if you're someone who's saying, well, hey, I'm not naturally someone who knows how to show that kind of affection, well, I'll say then start with people that you already have an established relationship with. You know, ease yourself into it. Friends that you already have in the church or maybe people in your neighborhood group or in mom's group or a triad that you're meeting with and can you then, in those relationships, maybe extend a, a little nudge or a handshake or a hug? And remember, this, this is spiritual communication, right? It's not just for you. It's for the other person. This is how we reassure each other of the radical welcome of the gospel. God doesn't see you as unclean and untouchable, and neither do I, right? Our embrace communicates the embrace of God. God has forgiven you of your sins, and so have I. God embraces you as his child, and so do I. This is gospel communication one to another. Start within your established relationships and work out from there. And number three, Stretch yourself. Stretch yourself. This is meant to be chosen spiritual affection that's shared among brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just natural affection, not just the people that you like. This is chosen affection. So stretch yourself in how you communicate this way within the Christian family. 
And so it's important then to quickly say, therefore, it's okay when it's a little awkward. It's okay to stumble through this together. No one needs to be, you know, a smooth operator around here. This is the church. It's like family, which means you don't always know what you're doing. You go in for a high five or a cool handshake. You jack it all up. That's all right. That's all right. Because we're coming to know one another's hearts. It's okay if it's awkward. In fact, I I know someone who, with a wonderful heart, sometimes announces, even as you're going in for a hug, announces, okay, awkward hug, right? You know, right? Just naming it as it's coming in, right? And that's okay. I think it's beautiful. It's free. It's honest. We grow in our awkwardness. We grow in being stretched in this way. And some of us might even be saying, man, this is hard. My, my, My own family didn't even give me hugs like this or make any kind of physical contact. And, and, you know, that's why it's important to remember that part of what we're doing here is we are re-familying each other. You see, because if you're a child in a family, a child ought to grow up with loads of physical affection, to be loved well, to be communicated not only with words and other nonverbal expressions, but even with the touch of a mom or a dad. We heard that early in verse 13 where Paul says, Great Rufus chosen the Lord and his mother who has been a mother to me also. Our affection, our family-like affection that we share with each other is a way for us to retrain our hearts and sometimes even our memories about what it means to be a family, especially for those of us who have had broken experiences of family, in some cases even terrorizing experiences of family, which is why we need to be gentle and patient with one another and not demanding. But oh, what a glorious exercise it is to walk with one another, to speak with one another, to greet with one another, to greet one another with a holy Yes. You see, we are bringing into one another's lives an embodied story, an embodied version of God's own promise to us. God is the one who loves us so. God is the one who even kisses us so. In just a second, we're about to take from the Lord's Supper pastor and theologian Jack Miller once said, the bread and the wine, the the Lord's Supper itself is the Father's kiss reassuring us of his love. A physical way in which you can experience the embrace of God. Something you can touch and something you can feel to communicate to your heart that he really does love you. And we too are sort of like a sacrament one to another. Tell each other the story of God's deep fatherly love for your brother, your sister. Tell them the story about his forgiveness and his warm embrace. Tell them the story about the wide open welcome of God 
or even sinners like you and me. Tell them by giving one another a holy kiss. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would come and bless our endeavors to embody this kind of affection, this kind of gospel love. Teach us how to relate to each other, not only with our words, uh, but even with our embodied realities. We, we need a lot of wisdom, though, in this, and so we pray that you would come and help us. But do this for your glory, because we're doing this as pointers to the reality of your love, your affection. And so receive all praise and receive all glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.